Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Earlier today, I sat at my dining room table and had a conversation, as I often do, with my integral brother and next door neighbor, Steve McIntosh. I'm really happy to know Steve. As one of our leading integral philosophers, he's the author of the books Integral Consciousness and Evolution's Purpose, and has a new book coming out later this year called The Presence of the Infinite. Steve is also the co-founder and president of the Institute for Cultural Evolution, known as ICE. ICE is currently engaged in an initiative to bring new solutions to the global problem of militant Islamism. ICE has invited several Islamic scholars to Boulder for a mini-conference on the topic in a few weeks on April 23rd. It's entitled Cultural Challenges to Emerging Islamic Modernism and will be held at Colorado University and the Integral Center. Some of it will be live streamed, so join in if you can. You can get information on that and all things ICE at culturalevolution.org. Today, Steve and I talked about a paper that he's just released called Fostering Evolution in Islamic Culture. I really enjoyed our conversation and expect you will too. So welcome, and thanks for tuning in to The Daily Evolver. All right. <laughs> well, hey, Brother Steve. How are you doing today? Brother Jeff, it's a pleasure to be with you today. <laughs> As always. So I want to start by just saying that I really love your paper. And I really feel like it moves the ball in this, you know, really important area that everybody's talking about and thinking about, which is, you know, how do we relate to this, first of all, radical Islamism, and then also just the sort of general antipathy between the modern world and the, and the Islamic world. And it makes me realize, reading your paper, just how powerful the integral view is in helping sort all this stuff out. And I think you really did a beautiful job of, of just that. So uh, actually, let me start by uh, reading your first sentence, which I thought was really good. And then you can you know, explain it and take it from there. Mm -hmm. You write, the ongoing rise of radical Islamism in the 21st century is a difficult and dire problem for which cultural evolution is really the only viable permanent solution. So let's start there. So you talk about cultural evolution, and so what, what do you see, and how do you see it relating to this issue? Sure. Well, the Institute for Cultural Evolution, the nonprofit think tank under whose auspices this paper is written and published, its mission is to really bring the light of this integral or evolutionary perspective to bear where it can, it can really show new things and, and help um, overcome, you know, problems by uh, demonstrating stuff that's difficult to see uh, if you're not, you know, coming from this perspective. And the entire world, of course, with ISIS and the Charlie Hebdo attacks and the ongoing, uh, you know, conflict between uh, the developed world and radical Islamism has got uh, the attention of the developed world. I mean, I've read, uh, you know, probably 30 different op-eds uh, over the past you know month on the, the problem of Islamism, and almost all of them are missing a cultural dimension in the way they're thinking about it. So this is really a perfect opportunity, you know, with the eyes of the world on the problem, to really demonstrate how uh, an integral perspective can add to the, to the discourse, can, mm -hmm. can point out new things. 
And it tied in especially well uh, with the work of my forthcoming book, The Presence of the Infinite, where I talk about the evolution of spirituality you know, in general, uh, from traditional spirituality to progressive spirituality and now to evolutionary spirituality, which, as I argue, is, is somewhat distinct. You know, it's sort of di a dialectical step beyond progressive spirituality. And at that level, I think there, there are new affinities between, you know, the sort of ancient noble religion of Islam and uh, this newly emerging form of spiritual culture in the West. Mm -hmm. So there just seem to be lots of... Uh, you know, opportunities mm -hmm. to try to uh, bring an integral analysis to the problem of radical Islamism, and that's what motivated me to write the paper. Yeah. You said that uh, when you were researching the paper and researching this issue in general, that you've read a lot about Islam and uh, both the ancient and more current uh, commentary. So what do, you, what do you see there? I mean, let's just start there with, the, you know, the religion itself, and, um, you know, what we, from an integral perspective, can sort of see. Sure. Well, first, I'm, I don't hold myself out as an expert or a scholar on Islam. Uh, you know, I've, I've read some of the Quran. I've been attracted to Islamic culture, not with any danger of converting to Islam, but mm -hmm. just in terms of, of the romance and the beauty of it. When I've traveled, for example, to, uh, to Egypt and to Palestine and to Turkey, I've been really struck by the beauty of Islamic art and architecture. So I've known that there's beauty, truth, and goodness in Islam. Um, probably since the time I was an adolescent, when I first saw uh, Lawrence of Arabia, there was something kind of deeply noble and attractive about mm -hmm. Islam. Yeah. Um, and uh, despite all of the features of, of Sharia law, which are abhorrent, of course, to liberal sensibilities. You know, there are many things about Islam which I, you know, clearly uh, don't have affinities with. From an integral perspective, we could begin to tease apart the beautiful parts from the outworn medieval scaffolding. And indeed, that's the only way we're really going to overcome radical Islamism, as right. I argue in the paper. Right. Well, and that, you know, brings up the point that I think one of the key points that integral theory brings to the party here. And that is that a lot of this conflict is, you know, it's not so much the doctrines of Islam and the rest of the world, it's developmental. How Islam is being uh, interpreted and um, lived out by various cultures. And that particularly in the Middle East, those cultures are arrested. Um, they're, they're in a sort of a unhealthy, uh, traditional and even tribal pre-traditional mm -hmm. stage of development that is, you know, just sort of uh, noxious to modern sensibilities. Right. So why is that? And, you know, what do you see? In, uh, right. Well, a lot of my analysis rests on the important work of moderate, modernist, Islamic studies intellectuals, right? So almost every major university has uh, scholars, professors, who are experts in Islam. And I've sampled this literature. I've been reading around in this area for about seven or eight years now. And one of the things that really struck me about this Islamic scholarship is that um, unlike many other academic departments, it seems that uh, the Islamic study 
intellectuals really understand the stages of development. Um, they're extremely obvi obvious to them, the traditional, the modernist, and now this postmodern influence on the whole situation now makes these three major stages of history abundantly clear, as well as the separation between them. You know, mm -hmm. how the, these stages There's are not... The stages being traditionalism, modernism, and postmodernism. Correct. Yes. Yeah, and that these are well identified by the, the top Islamic scholars as contributing to the problem. However, while they can see this developmental trajectory into modernity, the idea that postmodernity is actually a stage that can be compared to the modernist and the traditional, that's something that they're still you know, trying to develop because within academia, for I think evolutionarily appropriate reasons, the theory of cultural evolution has been called into question, right? Yeah. The, the, sort of the Victorian notions of cultural superiority uh, were, were responsible for, within this Islamic studies area, what's known as Orientalism, right? And uh, a very important Islamic studies intellectual, Edward Said, who uh, in the 1980s pointed out this problem of Orientalism, how so much of academia in the West had a condescending attitude, yeah. right? A, a sort of imperialistic sort of idea that these were backward people. And uh, so this was, this was a cogent critique of Orientalism, which was a you know, natural outworking of postmodernism into the Islamic scholarship. However, the same critique of Orientalism has now been taken further and further by deconstructionist postmodern academics to become a kind of reverse Orientalism, right, where modernity is seen as the oppressor and the villain and the crimes of modernity are emphasized, you know, the, the, the illegitimate aspects of globalization are highlighted, and, you know, the gifts of modernity, the important things that modernism brings to the world, you know, freedom, prosperity, you know, liberal values, gender equality, all of those things are, in a sense, taken for granted by the, the, some of these deconstructionists. I mean, they sort of, those have, those have already been achieved, right? So their job is to try to critique modernity, and that's, that's an important job. Modernity definitely needs critiquing <laughs> and restraining. But what complicates this picture, I mean, if, if the world were uniformly modernist, and postmodernism was acting to improve modernism, right, by making it more moral, by pointing out its crimes, its shortcomings, you know, its, its value poverty in many respects, then that would be a straightforward project of cultural evolution. But because the majority of the world is, is in a pre-modern stage of development, and modernism is what's next for them in this timeline of historical development by and large, by critiquing modernism, the postmodernists have, in a sense, become political bedfellows with the pre-modern uh, forces in the Islamic world who are seeking to delegitimize modernity in the eyes of their fellow Muslims, right? So you have post-modernity complicating the situation. We, we want the pre-modern world to gradually adopt the liberal values of modernity, right, including gender equality, religious tolerance, uh, you know, uh, uh, personal freedom, civil rights, all of the benefits of, of prosperity and democracy that have, that have come about in the developed world. But prior to pre-modernity, those were the most heroic values, you know, truth, justice, and the American way, right? And we could sort of go out there and help the pre-modern world uh, to, to adopt those values. Now, it's important to say in this dialogue that one of the principles that is a background principle under which you and I are both working is that people have a right to be who they are, 
right? Claire Graves' famous dictum, right? That there's no imperative to evolve. And the, the pre-modern traditional populations of the world deserve respect. You know, it's not as if uh, they're not okay as they are, okay? But the problem comes in because within this, this what's known in, in Islamic studies as Islam's predicament with modernity, Unlike other forms of, of pre-modern culture, which are have less trouble adopting and adapting to modernity, Islam has shown itself to be particularly resistant more than other pre-modern traditional forms. And in the paper, I analyze why this is the case and, and their reluctance, their, their concerns that secularism, which is often seen as uh, uh, synonymous with modernity, that secularism spells the end of religion. Right, or the watering down of religion in a way that makes it compartmentalized and no longer a major force. It's sort of just like an ethnic duty or you know, something you do with your kids on the holidays, yeah. right? And that's true. It does. Well, at the modernist <laughs> level, yeah. Yes, exactly. But in the Islamic world, it's not clear to them as it is clear to us that, that secularism, atheism, right, the, the scientific scientism right, is not the end of history. Yeah. That, that when we move beyond the modernist stage, we begin to reclaim spirituality, yes. right, at a postmodern uh, and even a post-postmodern level. Yeah. And that reclamation shows that secularism and atheism are not the end of history, right? But that's not, that's not clearly culturally visible in the Islamic world. And indeed, secularism has become largely synonymous with Satanism, you know, yes. to many, uh, to many uh, uh, Islamists, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And so... Uh, this predicament with modernity, because Muslims are arguably the most religiously devout people in the world, uh, you know, they're not going to settle for a secular, watered-down version of Islam. In other words, the Muslim reformers who studied the situation, there, there is a remarkable amount of agreement that when they look at the history of Christianity, for example, they can see how the Reformation preceded the Enlightenment. In other words, that the traditional pre-modern religion itself was reformed in a way that made it more compatible with the emergence of liberal modernist values. So it doesn't take integral consciousness to recognize that Islam needs a reformation before it can have its own enlightenment, before it can develop its own homegrown version of modernity. And while we can see reformed Christianity and Protestantism, we can see reformed Judaism, you know, there's reformed Hinduism, there hasn't really been a form of, of uh, reformed Islam that's had any real cultural influence, right? Like they're moderate Muslim reformers, but these reformers who've been working on reforming Islam for the last 150 years have failed to grapple with the actual theology of Islam, the, the, the interpretation of the religion. Uh, and yet we see that in other countries like American Muslims or the Muslims in Malaysia, Indonesia, mm -hmm. they're far more compatible with modernity Sure. I think for purposes of this discussion, we could probably bracket uh, Indonesia because it, it's having less trouble uh, in, in countenance so encounter with modernity. They've managed to, you know, become modern. And yet what you're saying is that there isn't a, a reformed Islam that uh, they just sort of did it on their own or... Well, I don't think we can quite declare that Indonesia is fully modernist at this point. 
there is there are versions of radical Islamism that have been spawned within Indonesia. Sure. You know, th- this is a country that you know I have limited. Well, understanding. We'd all be happy if the Middle East was at the cultural development stage of Indonesia. They're, they're peaceful, right? Well, many used to we used to point to Turkey as mm-hmm. the the a good example of how an Islamic country can become modernist. Mm-hmm. But over the last few years, we've seen how the AK party, the ruling party, is an Islamist party. Right. Now, it's not, you know, maybe radical Islamist, but still, the reason that the European Union firmly rejects Turkey's assimilation into the EU is because they've really, in many ways, failed to embody the liberal values that that are necessary for them to become part of the EU, right? So even Turkey, which used to be, again, you know, the history of Turkey is very interesting because after the defeat of the Ottoman Empire in World War I, uh, the great Turkish reformer uh, Kemal Ataturk was a kind of a strong man who imposed modernity from the top, right. right, without reforming the the religion underneath. And that's why it hasn't really taken, yeah. uh, you know, it's only taken partially. You know, and there's a real danger to what's known as pseudo-modernity, mm-hmm. and that is adopting the technologies without the values. You know, arguably that's what happened in Nazi Germany, right? Absolutely. So... Uh, Indonesia is, is, a, is, a, is, you know, how, how much they've adopted the liberal values. You know, I'm not an expert, and the culture is not that transparent. So we yeah. really need to consult experts on that. But well, we can the, see the Middle East really yeah, clearly. Yeah. Fair enough. But, you know, I think one of the great things that the integral view brings to this understanding is the role of development itself. And that people at a traditional stage of development tend to have, you know, they tend to be very ethnocentric. They tend to be uh, patriarchal. Uh, and, you know, civil rights isn't high on the list. No, they certainly can't tolerate criticism, yeah. you know, flog the bloggers. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, so, uh, so the project is to have a religious reformation of Islam. And how goes it? What are you seeing out there? Sure. Well, as I argue in the paper, it starts, at least the integral contribution to this project of uh, gently persuading uh, the tr- traditional Islamists to reform their religion. Again, you know, the hardcore uh, radical Islamists are never going to be persuaded, but the majority of peaceful Muslims who love their religion may very well be persuaded to come up with a more modernist, friendly version if they were assured that secularism was not going to be the result. Yeah. So this is why, as I argue in the paper, we need to understand the religion of Islam, the noble, venerable, ancient religion of Islam, as a line of spiritual development within human history. I love that. That really helps me to see it as sort of its own flavor of the spiritual flourishing of humanity and how wonderful that is. Right. And in fact, you've talked about this. You were telling me earlier about you were, if you're ever in need of inspiration to go to Wikipedia and look up the, what is it, the 100 names of God? 99 names of God in Islam. The 99 names themselves aren't in the Quran. Many of them are. But an important work of a religious scholarship or development in the history of Islam was to identify and proclaim, you know, 99 names. Yeah. Well, tell us some of those names. You shared it with me. They're beautiful. Well, uh, again, according to Wikipedia, uh, one of them is the evolver. I the, love The that. maker. You know, the creator. The good the merciful, the compassionate, the gentle, the nourisher, mm-hmm. the unifier, wow. the one. Nice. I mean, what these names point to is that there is this strain 
of, of religion, right? Namely, the Abrahamic religions, right? The theistic religions, the religions that recognize a personal God as a creator of the universe, that capture an aspect of spirituality that's deep and is not merely resonant at the mythic level. You know, and this is an analysis that I go to, I argue at great length in my forthcoming book, The Presence of the Infinite, how one of the tasks of reclaiming spirituality in a post-secular or, you know, beyond modernism, it begins, we go beyond modernism, when postmodernism, as a defined term within evolutionary discourse, a sort of countercultural, progressive segment of the developed world, that in America, at least, the majority of postmodernists have some form of alternative spirituality as a big part of their worldview. You know, and these are, the, these are the liberals, folks, right? <laughs> well, what? you know, I would make a distinction between the progressives and the liberals. The liberals are just, you know, left modernists, right. whereas progressives are in a dialectical antithesis to modernism. Yeah. And one of the ways they've pushed off against the shortcomings of modernism is to reclaim spirituality, yes. right? So we have alternative spirituality, progressive spirituality, what used to be called New Age spirituality, but it encompasses much more than that. And one of the ways that progressive spirituality has reclaimed spirituality in general is by finding forms of spirituality that have a distinctly different feel and flavor than the Judeo-Christian religion that has been inherited you know, from the past. So therefore, um, westernized versions of Buddhism, right, Advaita Vedanta Hinduism, Eastern religions, uh, as well as um, nature-oriented religions like paganism or eco-spirituality, within the milieu, the cultural milieu of alternative progressive spirituality, um, for evolutionarily appropriate reasons, progressive spirituality has, has gathered together the rest of the wisdom of the world, which has a different flavor, which is definitely sort of a non-theistic flavor, right? Like, uh, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, these are non-theistic religions. You know, Advaita Vedanta, really non-theistic in a way. And so, again, this is important. One of the achievements, one of the really important successes of progressive spirituality is how it's identified what I call the non-dual pole of spirituality. In other words, this deep attractor basin of spiritual experience which rests in the non-dual. And within the non-dual complex, which includes Hinduism, Buddhism, and non-dual versions of other religions, um, you know, the idea of a personal god is not something that's usually in that mix. Yeah. And again, this is appropriate. But as I argue in the book, spiritual experience itself reveals that not only is there a attractor basin of non-dual in which there is one, and this distinction of creator and creation, you know, is not recognized, there's another attractor basin which forms an existential polarity with the non-dual, which I refer to as theism. A more theologically correct term might be panentheism and pantheism, but those sound so similar that they can become confusing. So I use the polarity of non-duality and theism as these two major kinds of spirituality that can be found throughout the history of the world religions. And one of the ways that evolutionary spirituality goes beyond progressive spirituality is it begins to recognize the theistic truths, you know, the theistic spiritual experience of the love of God, how the, the heritage of the spirituality of Western civilization will indeed contribute to the ongoing realization of higher forms of spirituality, and that um, that both of these kinds of spirituality can kind of true each other up. The non-dual and the theistic can work together to make up for each other's shortcomings. 
Now, that's a bold statement, and many listeners may disagree, or you know, it's a lot to unpack in the course of this discussion. But evolutionary spirituality reclaims this notion of a loving creator, but at a, a post-mythic, post-secular, and post-postmodern level that could begin to recognize the deep theistic truths of Islam at, at, with new eyes and at a new level. Mm. Right? So in other words, we can see that this single-minded devotion to the personal creator of the universe, which is really the heart of Islam, right? They're, they're teaching God is great, you know, even though we recognize it as a scary battle cry, that actually Allah can Akbar, right? Yeah, Allahu Akbar. Yeah. That actually can be turned around in a way of, of, of bringing forward the truths of Islam that will continue to edify humanity you know, into the 21st century and beyond. In other words, when we talk about Islam as a line of spiritual development, one of the ways we can foster the development of this line is begin to show how it shows up within the cultural soil of this post-postmodern or evolutionary spiritual space. And so the inevitable question is, well, evolutionary spirituality is just beginning to emerge uh, it's it's totally obscure. How could something? How could this avant-garde version of, of Western culture have an influence on you know this this larger pre-modern world of Islamic civilization? And the argument that I employ in the paper to try to prove that this could indeed be influential is to see how much influence postmodern critical academia has had. Right. So you pointed out to me that if you go to the Al Jazeera website. You see these sort of Marxists and you know yeah. bomb throwing leftists attacking globalization and making common cause with the Islamists in their opposition to modernity, and so if deconstructive postmodern academia can influence uh, Islamic intellectuals in the Middle East, so can evolutionary spirituality. Yeah. The comments that I'm getting on the paper from Muslims on the website indicate that this is really uh, striking a nerve with people who love Islam but who are conflicted about its pre-modern status. We can sort of show, look, it does grow, it will grow, and it has to role to play in the future of cultural evolution. Well, I myself I, I am excited at the prospects of integrating the genius, the beauty, the truth of, of Islam. And not only do I think that bringing on the theistic pole again is sort of cutting edge, I think it's cutting edge in the integral community as well. I mean, most integralists that I know can, you know, sort of talk about Christ consciousness and sort of a third person idea of God. Right. You know, as a force. Mm -hmm. But do they, does this God see them and love them? Sure. Does this God know himself, herself, itself? Uh, no. It's, it's, that feels too like going back to traditionalism. Right. So, you know, modernist, postmodernist, and even, I think, as people enter integral, there's still allergies to going back to this, you know, God, because we have a hard time thinking of God in something other than traditional mythic ways. Sure. So this is exciting. Well, and, and pushing off against the sort of the mythic, judgmental, anthropocentric notion of the creator is an important cultural uh, project, right? Yeah. It begins with modernity, but then it, it, it has to go on in the postmodern world. In other words, progressive spirituality is still tasked with history of removing these patriarchal notions Absolutely. of the vengeful deity. And so it's natural for progressive spirituality to try to either 
uh, move away from any notions of a of a personal creator and move towards the non-dual, right? Or or at least tone down or kind of fuzz it up in a mm-hmm. way, like you yeah. said, that you know that sort like of like the Unitarians. Yes. Yeah. So, but but as I argue in in the presence of the infinite, just like non-duality as a whole spiritual complex of understanding is based on a deeply foundational spiritual experience, the unitive experience where subject and object, you know, become one. There's another foundational or deep, you know, uh, level of spiritual experience that corresponds to an atheistic understanding of the source of reality, and that is the love of God. You know, the love that pours forth from the heart, from the source. That that it's not just sort of general, impersonal love. It's love for you. It's real love, yeah. and it's you know the love of God that comes from inside of you. And, you know, saints and sages down through the ages have had these direct experiences, and these can be had, you know, by ordinary spiritual uh, practitioners, as I argue in the book, through various forms of prayer and faith and, uh, you know, experiential uh, practices towards spirit. Yeah, without having to actually clench around some hardened understanding of it. I mean, there's a mystery to it. Well, you know, the the, the idea that, that... that we are it, you know, the famous uh, uh, doctrine of Advaita Vedanta, that thou art that, right? Well, if we are the whole in a way, and we contain personality, if we're personal creatures, how could the whole, how could the non-dual whole as, 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 a, as a totality um, lack personality? You know, in other words, God's just not the perfection of truth or, the, you know, the perfection of being. God's also the perfection of personality. And so teasing apart the anthropocentric notions, the pre-modern notions of a, of a human-like God, um, that's, that's something that can be done at the evolutionary level. In other words, one of the important emergent powers of the evolutionary perspective is its ability to, as I said, and as Ken Wilber said, other scholars, to tease apart the dignities from the disasters. You know, we can begin to, to tell the difference as opposed to just seeing them you know, for, the, for the negative. And so just as we're teasing apart the dignities from the disasters of the notions of a personal creator, we're also doing the same with Islamic theology and seeing within it, you know, the realizations of, you know, some of the historical greats. For example, when I read the poetry of Hafez, you know, the, um, the 14th century Persian poet who writes about the love of God with such clarity and knowing, you know, this sort of deep authenticity about it, you know, it's clear that some of history's great sages have encountered this and that this is an experience so deep that it's not something we're going to just leave behind with the myths that go with traditional forms of spirituality. It's important to say that radical Islamism, uh, you know, the sort of the militant version of Islamic culture, part of the reason that this is emerging is that there's this deep heroic impulse to try to rescue Islam from death at the hands of modernity. In other words, secularism is seen as kind of corroding or dissolving the the traditional. It's seen as the great Satan. Right. And so this heroic impulse can be harnessed for positive. I mean, in other words, it doesn't always have to go in, in the direction of trying to drag Islam back to its medieval past. The same heroic impulse can be harnessed in the project of theological reform, cultural renewal, that can be greatly facilitated by uh, the insights of evolutionary spirituality. Indeed, you know, in order for 
radical Islamism to be defeated, it's really going to take the majority of uh, Islamic culture and civilization to do it, right? It's not something that we can do from the outside. It needs to be done from the inside. But we can empower the moderate Muslim reformers who are working to reform the theology by making common cause with them and, and helping them appreciate Islam as a spiritual line of development, right? That that there are some who maintain that because the Quran is a, is a um, divine revelation, that it's immutable, unchangeable. But in practice, you can see how uh, Salafism and, and Wahhabism as ultra-conservative forms of fundamentalist Islam, those really only began to arise in the 18th century and partially in, in reaction to modernity. Yeah. And so if Islam could go backward, in, in uh, so to speak, in uh, relation to the West and the developed world, it can also go forward. It's not a changeless situation. Indeed, in the golden age of Islam, uh, there was a, a reason-friendly version, a reason-friendly interpretation that was tolerant of other religions and embraced science and um, uh, reclaiming the reason-friendly version of Islam that prevailed during the Golden Age is a project that moderate Muslim reformers champion. But the reason that they haven't been able to get that done is because there's this problem of the, you know, the, the Islam as a whole not seeing its way to be compatible with modernity. And so modernity itself is contributing to the problem, right? The crimes of modernity, you know, the, the colonialism, imperialism... Because modernity is, is creating radical Islam as much as the failure of traditional Islamists to emerge, that both of these worldviews are responsible, and therefore both of them can evolve, will need to evolve to overcome. Radical Islamism is a, is a wicked problem with no easy solution, which has got the attention of the West. And this is a perfect opportunity to use this problematic life condition to stimulate further evolution of not only the pre-modern, you know, traditional Islamic culture, but also modernity. You know, it can evolve into a more moral form of civilization, and post-modernity can evolve. And the way that all three of these stages can can move forward in history is, as we, you and I, contend, as I argue in my book, through the emergence of this post-postmodern or integral this, perspective. This next stage. Yes, yeah. the next stage does what the other stages can't and that is can kind of harmonize them and tie them together and see them all for their uh, dignities and therefore be able to tease apart the disasters that each of them contain in a way that can't be done from within any of these worldview structures. Yeah. Well said, Steve. And, you know, beautifully written, beautifully transmitted. And I thank you so much. Uh, folks, if you're interested in reading Steve's paper and more on what the Institute for Cultural Evolution is doing, you can see that at culturalevolution.org, Steve? Yes, culturalevolution.org is the website. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you again. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Jeff. It's been a pleasure to be with you.